Everybody and welcome to True Stories of Tinseltown. And I am here doing April Vivier with with April Vivier, and we are doing our summer series. And of course, it is sultry brunettes of classic Hollywood. And I love doing our series, Miss April. How are you? I'm doing very well. How are you, Grace? I'm good, but I'm sad. I just wanted to say to everybody today that. Um, Ed Asner from so many things died. He was 91, and I was fortunate enough to interview him actually twice. He was such a wonderful person. I've always admired him, and he was charming and adorable and, you know, really one of the most fun people I've ever interviewed. So I'm going to put that up, and um, I will just give a little bit of a forward before that, but R.I.P. Ed, you were the best. I loved you, kiddo. I love that guy. And he did have really cute toes. I've got to say it. <laughs> <laughs> but tell everybody who we are talking about today. Um, we are doing, I don't know, I would say she's our ultimate brunette. Um, but we are doing Elizabeth Taylor. Were you just saying that? Because I was like, this could be controversial. Because does she have black hair or does she have brunette hair? But I guess she goes. She does have more black hair, but then she becomes brunette. So we can get away with it, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, she. I don't know. I feel like it's kind of hard to differentiate because we you always just hear blonde brunette or a redhead. Right. So and there are we're many... going to lump her with the brunette. Yes, or just a dark-haired, sultry. She's just sultry and brunette or black or black net. I don't know what she is, but she's <laughs> sultry and we love her. So you want to start us off, April? Yeah. So Elizabeth Taylor was... Um, born Elizabeth Roseman Taylor, one of the few stars who got to keep her name. Uh, and she was born on February 27th, 1932 in London. Um, her mom was a retired stage actress, Sarah Southern, and her dad was an art dealer. And dad's name was Francis Taylor. Um, and interestingly, Sarah and Francis had gotten married when Sarah was considered a little long in the tooth. They got married when she was 31, which is my age, and I obviously don't consider that old. No, in those days, but, it was probably like old maid times or something like that. Exactly. In 1926, I mean, yeah. that was like, wow. Spinster aunt. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, and they, they actually, they first had a son named Howard. Um, but, of course, Elizabeth is born, and she just takes the world by storm. Yeah, they were um, actually from uh, Missouri, right? They were Americans who moved to London. Yeah, they were from um, Arkansas City, Kansas, mm. because Kansas has a lot of cities named for other states. Aha, 
Yes. Um, but, you know, they, they, yeah, they had moved to London in 1929. They opened an art gallery. And, you know, a good portion, not obviously her entire, but a good portion of her childhood was spent in London. And I think that's kind of how we got that iconic Taylor way of speaking. I love the way she spoke. It's very, very soft. And she became a dame. Come on. Dame Elizabeth. Yes, she um, she would eventually become a dame. <laughs> um, and, you know, she, she went out to a Montessori school, which at the time was considered very cutting edge. Um, and her parents were Christian scientists, which I feel like a lot of people in the 1930s oh. were Christian scientists. Ginger Rogers and her uh, mother, too, right? Yes, yeah. and Marilyn Monroe had been raised as a Christian scientist by her um, Aunt Anna. It was it was a really, you know, a popular fad religion, I guess, at the time. I shouldn't say that because they're still practicing Christian scientists, but in the 30s, it became very popular to become one. Yes. Um, probably the most famous, I, I think he's now a foreign one, but today would be Val Kilmer. Yes. Didn't he not take, um, can we, he, didn't he try to, he cut why his cancer got so bad is because he didn't get it treated right away. Yeah, so Christian scientists, and I am going at this in the most basic definition possible, especially in the 30s, believed that you could basically pray any sickness away. Mm-hmm. Um, and many of them will refuse medical care because they believe that it's in the hands of God. But yes, that is why his um, cancer spread so much because he was reportedly sticking to his teachings. And then when it got bad, he finally got treated for it. I, I'm just going to give one more example because it's at Asner. Um, Georgia Engel, who played Georgette, she lived in my neighborhood and she was so sweet. She really talked like that. She, she had a really low voice. And she was so nice. She, when she died, she was also a, a Christian scientist. And she wasn't treated. And she just died. So that's just a FYI. Yeah, no. And like you said, I mean, Ginger Rogers was the same way. And she didn't get treated for things. And then she passed away. But uh-huh. to each their own. Exactly. Um, but they, the the Taylors have a pretty charmed life. I think it's safe to say that Elizabeth was born with a silver spoon in her mouth. Um, but in 1939, of course, you know, war is coming on in Europe, and the Taylors are very worried about it. So in April, Elizabeth Howard and Sarah return to the U.S. Um, they move in with Sarah's dad in Pasadena. And Francis would eventually join in December of 39. And he, you know, he waits to go because he has to close his art gallery and he has to get, you know, their affairs settled in London. Mm -hmm. Um, 1940, you know, early 1940, he basically picks up where he left off. He opens a new gallery in Los Angeles and the family will eventually settle into Beverly Hills. Um, and there, there's a lot about, you know, Sarah being a stage mom. She's one of the, I think that she, you know, because Sarah had been an actress, so I think, you know, 
she had this gorgeous daughter that she is told by pretty much everyone they meet, oh, you should put her in the movies. Right. Didn't they also, I'm sorry, they did even, I heard Howard was even more beautiful at, you know, they wanted him to go into movies too. And he wanted no part of it. I'm sorry for interrupting. Oh, no, you're fine. No, Howard looks a lot like Elizabeth. He's gorgeous, yeah. Yes, no, he definitely is. And yeah, but he just, he wants something to do with it. I mean, he's a few years older. I can see why. Yeah. Um, But, you know, Sarah, you know, is reportedly just hearing nonstop about how beautiful her daughter is. Um, But it's also worth pointing out that one of Francis's Beverly Hills Art Gallery clients is Hedda Hopper. Oh, boy. The lovely Hedda. And Sarah... Sarah quickly becomes friendly with Hedda, and Hedda starts dropping little, like, stories about Elizabeth, who's, you know, 11 at this point. It's like Mm -hmm. 1941, uh, or, you know, 10. But anyway, early 1941, uh, she starts dropping, you know, like, little things about this gorgeous girl that she, you know, sees at this art gallery. And the studios start coming around. Um, and in early 1941, Liz, uh, you know, sits there and she gets her first screen test. Um, they're with Universal Pictures and MGM, and she gets offers from both of them. They both, you know, want to hire her. And Sarah, interestingly, goes with Universal. Um, and that's one of those things I've always found a little odd because even in the 1940s, I mean, MGM is where you want to go. Yeah. Look at that lion out in front. <laughs> go to that lion. Yeah, exactly. That was like a golden place. Yes. That's, that is odd. Exactly. Um, but I've always thought that maybe she went in with the mindset that Liz could get established at Universal and mm. eventually go to MGM. Uh-huh. Um, but regardless of what, happened you know she she goes with universal um she gets a very small role and there's one born every minute and within a year her contract is terminated um apparently the reason they decide to dump her is that she looks too old she doesn't have the face of a child and i have to say i agree that liz taylor never really has the face of a child no 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 she has a little adult face on a child's body yes very much so so gorgeous Um, unbelievably gorgeous. she is of course she has you know her um I'm not even going to attempt to say it, but she has that genetic mutation that gives her a double set of lashes. And she has those gorgeous blue eyes that will photograph, you know, kind of a lilac color uh, or lavender, not lilac. But anyway, she's just, she's absolutely, you know, gorgeous. But I can see why, you know, people are like, she looks a lot older than she really does. Even though she's only like Uh, four foot 10 or something or four seven. Exactly. Yeah. Um, late 1942, Samuel March, who's an MGM producer, comes around and he's, you know, looking for a little girl to star in Lassie Come Home. He needs a little girl with an English accent. Well, you know, Liz comes in and it's all over. I mean, she has the part. And um, her contract is only set to last three months. 
and it's basically a trial contract and trial contracts just on a side note will go well into the 50s you'll put a star under a contract for usually three months to a year with the idea of you know We'll see how they do. And then, of course, in January of 43, she is given her standard seven-year contract. How much did she get Um, to start out? I believe she got, like, maybe $500, but I do not have that in my notes. But I know she got a fair amount. I'm sure. And is that when she started? She was in Jane Eyre. She was, which is probably my favorite, was Taylor Child's role. Even Mine though I don't too. see a lot of her. She's, I love that movie. I do too. And she is just, your heart, she's so heartbreakingly beautiful. And what they do to her, the cruelty, you know, and, and she she didn't have a large part, but you didn't forget her. I mean, you, she really made, she she stood out, even though it was a small role. She was wonderful. I thought she did a great job, and she was absolutely gorgeous. No, she she definitely was. Um, and then when she's 12, she's cast in National Velvet. And, you know, while movies like Lassie Come Home and Jane Eyre had, you know, been successful, National Velvet really propels her to, you know, superstardom in 44. Um, It's not without, though, its issues. Taylor famously begins with, you know, the producer saying, hey, we're going to wait until you grow. And according to Taylor, she willed herself to grow. (laughs) That's something. Go, Elizabeth. Um, you know, the studio wants her to uh, change her eyebrows. You know, they say they're too prominent. They want to dye her hair. They want her to change her name to Virginia. But, you know, the tailors are just like, no, you know, you take what you have. But what they do agree is for Liz to wear braces and the removal of a couple baby teeth. Um she will have an issue on the National Velvet set where she falls off the horse. She damages her back. She's in excruciating pain for the rest of her life um, because of that injury. Um, but that, 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 like you said, National Velvet's very successful. MGN gives her a new contract to last seven years, and that one I do have. They put her at $750, which at the time is huge. Big, big money. It's funny. I read both of these, um, and it said that they wanted Shirley Temple as a role of Velvet. Um, or not Velvet, that's not her name. That's the name of the horse, right? National Velvet. They wanted her to play the part, Elizabeth Taylor's part, and um, they wanted Spencer Tracy to be in it too, but Shirley Temple's mother turned it down because she felt it did not showcase Shirley enough. And I'm so glad she didn't cast Shirley. I'm, I'm glad that Elizabeth got the part. Yeah, I mean, I love Shirley Temple, but I don't think that Velvet would have been No, good. that wasn't a good, uh, good fit for her at all. 
no, not, not at all. Um, and you know, the studio really starts, you know, just kind of pushing her. They release a book that I actually own that is just very mindless child fluff called Nibbles and Me. Um, <laughs> it's about t- it's it's supposedly written by Taylor. I'm sure that there are you know some some edits, but it's about her pet chipmunk, her little nibbles. And then they have- that's cute. Yeah, n- little nibbles, nibbles and me. Um, and they, you know, start doing paper dolls, coloring books, regular dolls. Um, and then it gets a little weird. Um, they when she turns fifteen in nineteen forty-seven, they start to kind of try to give her a more adult image, and she, you know, starts going to parties and she's going on dates. And she's frequently compared to older actresses like Ava Gardner and Lana Turner. Uh-huh. And she, you know, makes movies like Life with Father and Cynthia, where she, you know, has more adult storylines. And I do have to say, this is really before, like, the teenager image. It's basically you go from child to adult. Right. The teenager phase isn't really, you know, explored a whole lot during this time. So I I shouldn't say it's weird. It's normal for what it is at the time. But now we're like, oh, no, we don't put 15-year-olds in, like, these love interest storylines. No, definitely not. <laughs> um, you know, she, she gets married and Julia misbehaves. You know, she's bright in that movie, um, which comes out in 1948. So and she's then, 16. Yeah. And then, um, you know, she, let's see, in 48, she'd be, would she be 16? Yeah. Would she be 32? Yeah, she was she'd be, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then 49, she has her last adolescent role, and that is, of course, in Little Women. Um, you know, and, that really, you know, marks her marks her transition, you know, point where they're like, okay, now you have to do adult movies. Um, Which she did. The next she, one was. Sheesh. Yes, she Conspirator. does the conspirator. So she was yes. 17. I wonder how old he was. He's probably 37 or something, um, Robert Taylor, right? Must yeah, be around I mean, that age. Robert, yeah, Robert Taylor's not. Um, let's see, Robert. Let me think. Robert Taylor's born in nineteen eleven, mm. and then it came out in forty nine. So he'd be 30, 37, 38 when filming. Yeah, I saw that movie. Did I, you ever see it? Yes, and it, it's interesting. It is interesting, but I did find it creepy. Because Elizabeth yeah. was young, and even though she looked older, she didn't belong with Robert Taylor and the whole nine yards. And, you know, it wasn't a great film, but it is an interesting film in the way uh, it portrays Elizabeth as a married woman to a woman. She's a woman, not a kid. And at that point, she's only 17, She's only 17 years old. Yeah, she's she's 16 when they film and 17 when it's released. Oh, wow. Um, and he's, yeah, like, what you said, like 37? Yeah, 37, 38, so he, yeah. 
Yeah, so he's like 20 years older than her. Which is really creepy. Um, yeah, it is creepy. And there are days where I'm just like, oh, no, we don't we don't do that. Um, you know, and then she does the big hangover where she's involved with Van Johnson, who is also significantly older than her. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's just, it's just one of those things. It's like, you know, you know, maybe, but you know, it's also, it's the time. And I do realize the time and the big hangover is notable because it's released in May of 1950. And that is also when she marries her first husband, Nikki Hilton, whose official name is Conrad Hilton Jr. But she was making um, father of the bride. Yes, she she's making father of the bride, and MGM uses it uses her wedding to promote father of the bride. Yeah, they got married beforehand, and then that was released. Yeah, and it's um, the marriage with Nikki is toxic to say the least. Yeah, they go on a three month honeymoon, right? They did, and she realized within, you know, a matter of days the <laughs> marriage wasn't going to work out. He's abusive, he's an alcoholic, he's horrible. He's this but young guy, had, spoiled brat, gambler, beat her up, just a total creep, 100%. Exactly, and she had looked at the marriage as a way for her to get away from her parents and MGM. She thought, well, if I get married, I'll, I'll be fine. A lot of women do that. A lot of women did that back then. They married people to get away from their parents' house. Yeah, exactly. Um, And she, you know, like I said, she realizes, you know, he's abusive, he's an alcoholic, he's a gambler, he's a womanizer, and they don't really have anything in common. And, you know, she gets a divorce in January of 1951. I mean, she gets away from that pretty quickly. Um. And then 1952, she marries Michael Wilding, who is 20 years older than her. Yes. Um, And um, they're they're married uh, just like a year and a month after her divorce from uh, Nikki is um, granted. Where'd they meet? They they met on Ivanhoe, right? That was with Robert uh, Taylor again. Yeah, they met in 1948 um, for the conspiracy. Oh, he, she they, did meet him then. Their relationship begins in, um, during Ivanhoe. Yes, and the funny thing is, is uh, Rob, her hubby, was involved with Marlena Dietrich at the time, and she was just like really always hated Elizabeth for that. I don't think she and um, she and uh, he would have gotten married, but she just. She just couldn't stand Elizabeth. But obviously he didn't see it the same way. I think she thought he would be oh. steadying. Yeah, he thought, you know, he was going to be calm, quiet, and secure. And, you know, he thought, well, this is really going to help my marriage. Um, we and- have to talk about a place in the sun, though, first. Yes. So... The pl- a place in the sun is just like it's I don't know, there's so many moments where I can sit there and say this is really what propels Liz, but 
A place in the sun, I think, officially marks like, oh, I am an adult. Um, it's co-stars relative-ish newcomer Montgomery Cliff, who had been on Broadway. And, of course, that starts one of the most important relationships of Liz's life, her friendship with Montgomery Cliff. She loved him. She deeply loved him. And in the beginning, she was, she thought she was, but she was in love with him. And, you know, she obviously found out that that wasn't going to be, but they were like soulmates as friends. I read this really great book about them, Elizabeth and Monty, and hopefully the author's coming on. We were supposed to do one, but hopefully this September. It's a good book. And um, she just adored him, and he adored her back. And um, when she met her second husband, Mike Wilding, he was very close to the both of them. He was friends with the both of them. And it's cute. I found these pictures of Montgomery Clift holding up the children, you know, the little kids. Very cute. Uncle Monty. Yeah, no, and I mean, I really think her relationship with Monty is probably one of the most important in her life. Definitely. By by far the most important relationship in her life that wasn't a relationship, like a romantic relationship. No sexual business, just... Pure friendship. And she was great in that movie, I have to say. I really thought she was good. Oh, yes. Yeah. She, she's absolutely fabulous. And, of course, Shelley Winters is in it. Shelley Winters just shines. Oh, yeah. Playing uh, such a cheap, drab, miserable creature. And I did a show with somebody and said people were supposed to root for, but we don't. And it's kind of sad because in so many ways you're like, she's such a nudge and a nag. And if she wasn't such a down, it won't be bad being poor. My parents were poor. You know, he just comes, she's blackmailing him because she's going to go to them, uh, Elizabeth and stuff. She realizes he's he's having a grand summer and she said, you got to marry me. And um, she's just really like, it's okay if we're, you know, and they're in the boat, and he's like, okay, I'm not going to kill her. But then she starts with, it doesn't matter. We'll love each other and the baby. We don't need money. Sort of just comes from Elizabeth in that life. And he loved Elizabeth, and he used Shelley, let's face it. Um, She was a booty call. And uh, it was just really good. But in in some ways, you just can't stand Shelley, but you got to put yourself in her shoes. And she knew that, too. It was her choice to play that. Yeah, no, exactly. Well, and Shelly had, you know, campaigned hard for that role, mm-hmm. too. She was fabulous, um, you know, as was Montgomery Clift. I mean, the three of them were great. Yes, no, m- most definitely. Um, and then... You know, after after that, she's put in Love is Better Than Ever, which is this romantic B-comedy. Um, her co-stars Larry Parks. Supposedly, she's put in it, you know, because MGM was mad about her divorce from Nikki Hilton. I mean, I I think that's up for debate. I don't. I think that there were other issues besides just the divorce from Nikki. We'll, we'll put that. I mean, because Liz was a bankable name for them. Definitely. Um, 
And um, when did she have her her first child? I'm looking here. Was born. She had two children with Michael Wilding. She she did. So when she's pregnant with her first, she agrees to sign a new seven year contract with MGM, and there are stipulations with it. Um, she doesn't want to continue to be with them. She has issues. She's putting her in bad roles, but she needs the money and she's obviously pregnant. So they give her a new salary of $4,700 a week, which is like almost $50,000 a week today. Which is mula, Uh, ula, bula, lots of dough. Exactly. Um, They give her a loan for her house and they agree to sign Michael for a three-year contract. Mm Mm-hmm. So, you know, the studio is exhibiting a lot of control over her, but she's also, you know, getting a lot of money in exchange for selling her soul, basically. But they have Michael Jr. on January 6, 1953. And then they'll have their second son, Christopher, um, on February 27th. And... And, um, the marriage is not going swimmingly. Uh, they find she quickly. It's not only she finds out. Confidential finds out that Michael has been sitting there hiring strippers while Liz is away filming. <laughs> yes, and uh, also Hedda Hopper warned her big time not to marry Michael Wilding because she said that he was gay, and. She really worked on it. She did not want Elizabeth to marry him, and Stuart Granger. Stuart Granger. He. I don't. I don't believe he was gay. I believe, if anything, he was bi. And he, the strippers he was hiring were women. And but in Stuart Granger's book, he said that he did have a one-time thing with Michael Wilding, and it was during the war. It was like sort of like in the trenches kind of a thing. So he did say that. But that doesn't make, you know, that doesn't mean anything. Because he, you know, I don't know. He did what he did. I'm sure he was bored with Elizabeth. And I'm sure Elizabeth was, you know, she thinks he's going to be a studying influence. And she thinks he's a snore. No, probably, I would think. Um. Yeah, no. Um, you know, most definitely. Um, she's off, by the way, just being a human i know she's all filming giant when the story breaks they're together for like four more months and then she announces her intention to get a divorce which i cannot say that i blame her i can't either Uh, when was it last time i last time we saw paris is when they were announcing their no giant that's when all those things were coming through right yeah giants when last time i saw paris was um Last time I saw Paris was right when she discovered, I think she was pregnant with her first one, um, or second one, I should say. And then, um, yeah, it's during Giant that the scandal comes out about it. And then she's, like, finishing that up. She might have been just barely in between um, projects. But regardless, that that's when... That happens. But when she is married to Michael Wilding, this is when that horrible accident with Montgomery Cliff took place. Um, it was about, and he, 
I've read in tons of books that he was really tired. He didn't feel like going out that night. And Elizabeth's like, come, come. I got this cool priest. He even says the F word. Come, come, come. So he went. And the priest never showed up. He didn't come. But um, who was there? It was him and Kevin McCarthy and his wife. Kevin McCarthy, you guys, I think is most famous for Invasion of the Body Snatchers. But some in the book about Montgomery Cliff, the guy writes that he thinks that um, Montgomery was probably the love of his life was him, McCarthy. But who knows? Who knows? I don't think that they had uh, never. I've never heard of a sexual relationship between the two of them. Right. Yeah, no. Um, and it just hit me. She would have been, this would have been during Raintree County. Right. Um, because it's before Monty, after Monty, which is really heartbreaking. Yeah. And Rain Raintree County just doesn't do as well as they're hoping, but it does, you know, pretty well. Um, yeah, Monty's accident um, is just horrible. Liz is having to pick his teeth out of the back of his throat. Because he's choking and... He it was yeah. I guess a really creepy night, kind of wet, and he was following uh, Kevin McCarthy and his wife down, and then boom! I don't know how horrible. And um, she came running down the street, and he couldn't talk, and she did that. She was amazing, and she loved that guy, and she um, felt guilty for the. She really felt guilty because she felt it was her fault because she pushed him to come. But of course it wasn't her fault. But she, I can understand why she would feel guilty, but she really didn't have to feel guilty. It wasn't her fault. Yeah, no. Um, no, not at all. Um, so they, you know, Monty obviously physically recovers as much as possible from his accident, but never mentally recovers. He has to get extensive plastic surgery, which you can notice in Raintree County, both yes. before the accident and after the accident. Yeah, it, it's sort um, of like he had a nerve damage on one side of his face, so you could really see the difference. And he looked haunted, because I think at that time he was taking a lot of pills, and he just looked haunted to me, his face, his eyebrows, everything. He just, he tore my heart out, you know. He just, it broke my heart for him. That didn't help him at all. Yeah, no, not not, not one bit. Um, so, you know, she she's dealing with that. And then, of course, she, you know, finally gets her divorce from Michael. And... You know, less than, or right out, I think, a month once her divorce is finalized, she marries Mike Todd. She had met Mike uh, Todd when she was with her her ex-husband. They were still together. And Mike Todd was with the lady who was in Gone with the Wind and so many other things, the Prowler, Evelyn Keys. He was allegedly engaged to her. And they were on a boat together. He meets Elizabeth, va 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 voom Goodbye, goodbye, see ya. <laughs> Both of you, yeah, we're done. And I mean, yeah. Mike, Mike Todd had a lot of issues. He really yeah. did. He totally swindled Joan Blondell. She didn't have a penny anymore. He gambled her money away. And, um, you know, he was a big flashy showman type guy. And Exactly. 
and of course, he's going to introduce Liz to extremely extravagant jewelry. Mm-hmm. Um, which you know starts, as she put it, her love affair with jewelry. And you know they they have a pretty happy life. I mean they they fight hard and they love hard. Yeah, I but, love the story when they fought and. <laughs> They were just punching Elizabeth. Was Debbie Reynolds and Eddie Fisher were there at the dinner table. And Mike and Elizabeth start getting into a fight. And then they start, you know, punching each other, rolling around on the floor. And Debbie gets on top of Mike and says, get off of her. And they say, oh, don't be such a Girl Scout, Debbie. And, you know, life goes on. But she thinks this is horrible. And they just kind of laugh at Debbie. You're such a square. Whatever. Yeah. No. And that really, you know, sums up their relationship. They, you know, have very um, exciting relationship. And I do think that, you know, Liz probably did have two loves of her life. And one was Mike Todd and the other was Richard Burton. Yes. But it's easy to have a love of your life when it's only a two-year love. Do you know what I mean? That's the thing when some people say to me, oh, this was the love of my life. And it's true. Because before, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but before Richard died, she would always say Mike Todd was the love of her life. And then after Richard died, she was able to say that Richard was the love of her life. And, I mean, they went through the mill together. Mike Todd, they have had the child together. And how long were they actually married? They were married, I want to say, it's either just over or just under two years. Yeah, and um, Liza was just a baby, and he had to fly. It was a really horrible night, and Elizabeth was sick. She wanted to go, but he said, no, stay home. He tried it. Everybody said they were invited on the flight, like Kirk Douglas, because he wanted to do some, you know, play cards, whatever, but nobody went out. It was a horrible night, and nobody thought he should have taken that flight on the La Liz, right? What's the name of the plane? Uh, it's just the Liz. Ah, no law. Um, <laughs> I thought there was a law. Yeah, so. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's just, no, just the Liz. Um, and the the plane was overpacked and it was too heavy and the pilot, Jim, been piloting it and it was just a mess and everyone on board died. Um, and during this time she is making, um... What is she? She's making cat on a hot tin roof. And she said that, you know, acting in the film was basically the only thing kept her sane. She had only completed two weeks of filming. She took three weeks off. Um, But, you know, MGM's like, you need to come back. Mike has a lot of debt. Um, And so she just, you know, she goes back to work. Um, And of course, Mike Todd's best friend had been Eddie Fisher. And I think the best son. summary of his relationship with Eddie Fisher I have seen is that Eddie Fisher wanted to be like him Uh and you know Eddie like really looked up to him Um, and of course as you pointed out Eddie was married to Debbie Reynolds that was not a great marriage at all they were like America's sweethearts in the public either looked at as America's sweethearts Um, Eddie you know 
Debbie's taking care of Elizabeth's kids. Eddie's like, I'm going to go comfort her. Debbie's like, you were Mike's best friend. You should go comfort her. And then, of course, she starts a relationship with Eddie Fisher, which just (laughs) completely... I don't want to even say that it ruins her image because it really doesn't. It just makes her, like, infamous. Right. And MGM uses that to their advantage, and it's reflected in the film's promotional, you know, posters for Cat, obviously. And, of course, you know, same thing like with Butterfield 8 and suddenly last summer. I mean, she's really pants like, wow, you know, this is a femme towel. Right. And also, you know, uh, the press was eating it up because Debbie, and I, I know even through her own book, she said she wasn't in love. They weren't sexually compatible. He he totally dissed Debbie in his first memoir. He dissed every woman. He, he was just horrible, Eddie Fisher. And um, she said she got him drunk one night and she drank and she had sex with him because they hadn't really had sex since Carrie. And because um, she wanted a sibling for Carrie. And voila, I guess it worked that one night. And Eddie got Debbie pregnant. And then the sight of Debbie with babies or hair and pigtails, whatever, made Elizabeth seem like, you know, the vamp of all vamps. But it was yeah, just an exactly. image. It wasn't a true story. Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, it really shows how studios went through and you know, would decide how their image, how their star's images would be viewed. Right. And Debbie was a wholesome (laughs) good girl. Um, Eddie, I guess Mr. Pepsi-Cola, was it Pepsi or Coke, that sponsored the Eddie, Eddie Fisher Hour? One of those. And then, of course, they dropped him once he dropped Debbie. His career was basically ruined through this relationship. Yeah, and I mean, like you said, Eddie's a complete scoundrel. He's a creep. Ugh. He really badmouths everybody, you know, all the women, and just really, you know, Debbie's a lesbian because she has um, a sc- Her best friend from high school is a gym teacher. So, of course, Debbie's a lesbian. It's really stupid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's safe to say that Debbie was, was not a lesbian. And if she, you know, um, really, you know, just because her best friend from high school is a gym teacher, excuse me, Eddie, she was a down-home girl. Didn't she make, her mother made her dress for for the Academy Awards or something? I mean, she was just from a really basic family, you know, not anything. And um, Eddie... W- Besides his boyish good looks, which I've never seen. I never thought he was boyishly or mannishly good looks. I just never got his whole story here. But um, he was always, you know, just in his book, you know, you'd think he was like Don Juan. And he did have a lot of sex with, you know, showgirls, this, that. And he's comparing Debbie to them after she gets married because she was a virgin, you know, and um, he was bored by her. And she said she couldn't stand him touching her, so it was mutual. I think it was yeah, just the mean, humiliation. 
Yeah, no, and of course, you know, Debbie and Liz will eventually reconnect and become friends. I, I don't believe the narrative that they were best friends that some people put out, but I think they were friends. They were friends because their husbands were friends. Yeah, no, and I mean, like, after they reconnected, I don't believe the things that they became best friends. Oh, God, no. They were friends. Yeah, they could, um, they could, they could talk. They each other. Right, they didn't yeah, want to stab exactly. each other or, you know, Debbie didn't want to kill her or anything. <laughs> you know, they, they exactly. did, and they both laughed about Eddie, and, you know, that was it. it but yeah, no. Elizabeth exactly. converted to Judaism, Judaism. Am I saying it right? Judy. Yeah, Judaism. And that would be something she would adopt for the rest of her life. Yes, um, she did know. it for Eddie. Yeah, and she identified with it. Yes. And she would, you know, consider herself a Zionist until the day she died. Um, but her next film, you know, of course, all this publicity is going on with, you know, Cat on Tin Roof. And her next one is actually a Mankiewicz film, Suddenly Last Summer, and she's paid $500,000 to do it, which at the time is just amazing. I'll take it now. Um, <laughs> it's amazing to me. Give me five hundred grand. i will take it. I won't sneeze yeah, no. at that. Um, no, she gets 500000 for, you know, Suddenly last summer, um, and she has one film left for MGM, and this is in 1959. She does Butterfield 8, um, and she absolutely hates the film. She thinks it's a horrible film. Eddie gets she a doesn't part. Like her... <laughs> yeah, yes, Eddie, of course, gets a part, which is obviously because of Liz. Um, she thinks it's a horrible film. She doesn't like her performance in it. She's just not a fan of it at all. But... It does very well. Um, they want to see the vixen. Yes. And after its release, um, she'll receive an Academy Award. And, of course, um, Shirley MacLaine will famously say, I lost to a tracheotomy. And I believe she um, did. Because Elizabeth, all of a sudden, she had a public sympathy with her again because she almost died. And... So people were, you know, they. I don't know. They hate you. They love you, and then they hate you again. But at that point, she was getting sympathy, and she almost died. So they gave her. She got the award because that's certainly. I. I don't like that movie at all. No, it's it's not a good movie. No, um, and Eddie Fisher stunk. By the way, he was horrible. Yeah, I think Eddie Fisher honestly brings it down. Yeah, and so I, I think, think that, yes. Oof. I think that the Butterfield Eight was actually a pretty you know forward thinking mm-hmm. script to handle at the time. Mm-hmm. That you know Eddie's third build, and he just he definitely brings the film down. I actually think it's a good Liz performance. I don't think it's her best by mm-hmm. any stretch. But, you know, I also think she probably should have won for Cat. Yes. And this was, you know, like you said, she has the near-death experience, which we'll get a little more into that in a little bit. Um, And then, of course, you know, she didn't win for Cat when she probably should have won for Cat. So I don't necessarily think it was deserved for Butterfield 8, but I think it's understandable as to why she won. And I, you know, think that the tracheotomy pushed it over the edge. What and you know that was a gig for Eddie because he was not getting any more. He was really, 
he was blacklisted. Like I said, his his Pepsi Cola sponsorship ended. So did his show. So did bookings. And Eddie became like this wormy little slave boy to Elizabeth. He was her little lap dog, and her you know was you know he was always with her. And she doesn't respect the kind of a man. You know what I mean? A kind of guy that no. He basically becomes a. He basically becomes. Um, and he basically becomes like an employee. Mm-hmm. She doesn't have to pay. Yes. Uh, you know, Catering to her whims and taking care of her. And, uh, you know, she doesn't see him as a man anymore. She sees him as some wimp. <laughs> so, <laughs> that, that was. No, exactly. She would have never, if she was in her right mind, married Eddie Fisher. Ever, I believe. <laughs> Had Mike not died. It would have never crossed her mind to even be attracted to Eddie Fisher. That's what I think. Yeah, I know. There's no way she would have gone with Eddie Fisher if my cat died. Um, And then, you know, 1960, she goes into, late 1960, obviously, she goes into... um, or he's in 1960, but anyway, she goes into negotiations for Cleopatra. And she does not want to make Cleopatra. Um, she, you know, doesn't really have any interest in it. It's 20th Century Fox film. And Fox says, what will it take for you to make the film? And, of course, the most famous aspect of this is she says, I want a million dollars. But she also has other demands, too. And she figured um, they would she, never in a million years give her the million. Let me just, so I'm sorry, I interrupted you again. But go on. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, she doesn't think they're going to give in to all of her demands. And it's not just the million dollars. She also wants to get 10% of the film's profits. Mm-hmm. And the entire thing has to be shot in Todd A.O., which is a widescreen format that Mike Todd had developed. Mm-hmm. And she would, of course, get paid in a addition to her 10% in the million for them shooting it in his process. And Fox agrees. Um, which, as to why Fox agreed, I do not know. Because they were already struggling, and they had to know that the film would cost them. But they agreed to do it. And Fox is very stupid, because in 1960, late 1960, they start filming it in England, and because of this, she developed in March 1961. She develops near fatal pneumonia, which gives her the tracheotomy, which of course is what Shirley MacLaine was talking about. And she just can't handle the extreme weather in England. And they have you know all those sets and costumes and delays and. The just actors a bunch of stuff that's going on with it because the uh, actors were Rex Harrison was Caesar, and I think Stephen Boyd was he Mark Antony, mm-hmm. right? And so yeah. they had all this no. shot, and and so they had to to do so much. And how many millions did they lose just then because of it? Yeah, no, so. They, you know, said that they get great publicity about it because Liz almost dies, (laughs) but they can't use any of their footage. So Mm -hmm. they scrap all of their footage. They can't really move the sets. 
So they, you know, take what they can, but a lot of it gets left in England, and they move it to Rome, which is where it should have been filmed in the first place. Um, and, you know, they make sure to put Joseph Magwicks at the head, and like you said, they replace, you know... Um, Stephen Boyd and Rex Harrison also... Um, Eddie had an official job as Elizabeth's keeper. I, I, didn't you hear that too? That they were paying Eddie. Yeah. And he, he was supposed to get Elizabeth on time and sober to the set, so that was his gig. And of course, yes. you you just don't like a keeper. You just, you know what I mean? Someone who's checking on you and nagging you. And um, no. Um. No, not at all. And it's just one of those things, like you said. I mean, he's basically, he's not really doing anything. And I always call this Marilyn Monroe and Arthur Miller syndrome. Because you go with these, you know, sex symbol women. And they demand all of your attention. And so you give it to them, which means you have to put your career on hold. But they don't like that you have to put your career on hold. And then they start to, like, talk down to you and look down on you for doing what they want you, you to, to do. do for them. Because they look at you yes. as weak and as wimpy. And certainly, that's what Elizabeth, I think she saw Eddie as weak and wimpy pretty soon into her marriage. But, I mean, really, when he's there, he has to get paid by, um, maybe she even said he, Eddie needs a job. Give him money. And so that was his job. And I don't think, you know, Elizabeth lost respect for him big time. Oh, yeah. Most definitely. And she's, you know, sitting there and she's having a bunch of issues. Not only, like I said, she had health issues and they've had to, you know, move the film and everything. The film's budget, by the way, is eventually going to balloon to $62 million. Unbelievable. Which means, in the six, in yeah, 1960. Yeah. Sorry, what was that? I said, especially in the 1960s and just like 61. That's amazing to have any film yeah, cost no. that much money. Exactly. And I mean, just for inflation, the film basically costs like half a billion dollars. Wow. Did you, you know, Uh, I've never seen the movie all the way through. I mean, so it's originally planned to be a two-parter, but Fox severely cuts it and makes it a four-hour thing instead of two three-hour parts as it was intended and i think that really hurts the film yeah i think that if it had been released as cleopatra and julius caesar and then cleopatra and mark antony as originally intended it would have been a much better film but because you know Fox, so we'll go on Fox because I feel like you can't tell this story without going into Fox. So, very long story short, Fox has basically halted production on everything. They have a Gene Kelly film that's almost complete. This is in 1962. They have a Gene Kelly film that's almost completed. And, of course, they're also working on some things got to give with Marilyn Monroe, which, of course, Marilyn dies in that production. All that money is just lost. 
And so they put Daryl Zanuck in charge again. He he had left or been ousted or a combination of both, depending on who you want to listen to, um, in 1956. But they bring him back, and he releases his film that he's been working on, which is, um, is it All's Quiet on the Western Front? Mm. It's one of those war movies. I don't think it's all quiet uh, on the Western Front because I was 31. I don't know, like, uh. Is it a quiet play? I don't know. It's the longest it's day the, or something like that. The longest day, that's it. Thank you. I knew it was like a war movie. It's a big war movie. Um, yeah, no, it's the longest. So he's been working on that and he had been in negotiations with Fox. Um,. And so when Marilyn died, especially, he, he had already been in charge for a few weeks before, you know, she passed away. And he was sitting there and he was like, look, we need to get this out. And Zanuck was known as kind of like an expert editor. He would sit there and he could, you know, really like basically put movies down to the bare bones and he does, you know, a pretty good job on it, of it, I should say, for the most part. But I think that Cleopatra is one movie where you can really see that it's been edited down. Yeah, and it was it six hours and it went to four. Yeah. Or down to three, right? How long was it? Yeah, he, he got it down to uh, like three and a half hours, I think. Okay. Uh, I was wrong about that. Who was the first Caesar? Uh, because it was Rex Harrison um, who played Caesar in this. I wonder, was he, maybe it was just uh, the other dude that was replaced with Burton. Yeah, I can't. Yeah, I'm looking and I'm looking at trivia from the film. And I, for real, thought it was uh, Rex Harrison. But he was in the regular one. Um, oh, did you know Dame Joan Collins was cast in the title role? <laughs> I didn't know Joan Collins was a dame, too. Um, so, yeah, Joan Collins is... Um, Joan Collins was originally... Um, Going, she had screen tested for it. Sorry, I was trying to think how to do it. Um, and it just it became a, a thing. And um, just while I'm thinking about it, um, it was Peter Finch who was originally going to be Julius Caesar. Uh-huh. I knew it was one of those guys. <laughs> I knew Rex um, Harrison was there somewhere. Yeah, no, and then Rex Harrison um, obviously ended up becoming. Julius Caesar, but um, we are yeah, now. Joan Collins they had been screen tested for it. It wasn't though going to be the film that we saw. Not the big it budget going, one, no. Yeah, it was going to be made on a lower budget. Um, it was going to, you know, I don't want to say be a cheapy, but it was just going to, you know, be made on a much lower budget. And they probably would have done filming in Italy there to begin with. 
And with Joan Collins, they called her Elizabeth Taylor Lookalike. And Joan was absolutely stunning and still looks fabulous. She's still alive today. But she was of not, you know, the star power just wasn't there with Joan Collins at all. Yeah, no, it's just, it's, no, I mean, Joan, Joan Collins was, like you said, very, very pretty, but it's really not until the 80s that she becomes a household name in the U.S. Yeah, um, she did some cheesy films and stuff like that later, and then she became, because of, uh, I think she was in Dynasty or something like that. But we are now at the almost hour mark, and we didn't get into the main big daddy on campus, Richard Burton. Yes. Um, yeah, next episode, we'll go into Richard Burton. Um, I feel like that's a lot to unpack. It is. It's, it's better if you hear it all together. So we'll do Richard Burton. Um, who she married? Warner after him? Uh, John Warner and then Larry Fortin. I just love that. That's going to be so much fun. Okay, so that's going to be our part two, you guys. And we will do that. And thank you, Miss April, for part one of our Elizabeth Taylor, sultry, brunette, black-haired, whoever, dark-haired vixen girl. Because I love the Liz, not Lawless. (laughs) So there we go. Yeah, no, thank you very much for having me, Grace. I had a very enjoyable time. I always do, and we're going to have fun talking Liz's second half. I think it was really, it heats up, and it's very fascinating. She was just, had one kind of hell of a life. What else can we say? Wouch. You know, I don't think there's, yeah, I don't think there's anything else, um, to say she's she's a very very um complicated person to focus on yeah and she is uh she's something else anyway we're gonna get to part two and thanks you guys again r.i.p ed asner i loved you and i'm sorry that he's gone but i'm so glad that i got to know him r.i.p ed and thank you everybody for listening and thank you for the person who told me to get ricoli for my throat why didn't i think of that thank you (laughs) remember i always have my heart my throat problems and i say oh it's home funny or something like that and the person said ricoli you know that commercial for ricoli like i think they're throat things for your throat it was a commercial. Yeah, but- Sorry, you guys. That's what it was. But anyway, I just wanted to thank Rigoli because they were right. Uh-huh. I should have thought of these things. Okay, so thanks, everybody. Thanks so much, April. And till next time, sayonara. Bye, everybody. Listen to the stories of Tinseltown. They're not only good, they're true.